Father, you are such a good God. You're an awesome God. You're a God of wonder and a God of glory. And Father, you have left us here on earth for a purpose, to bring glory to your name, to edify the church and to expand the kingdom. And Father, we live in difficult times, confusing times, but we know that you are a God of wisdom and that if we ask of you liberally, you will provide. Thank you for the truth that sets us free. Thank you, Father, that your love is from everlasting to everlasting. We just pray a blessing upon this uh, service, this forum. We pray uh, that your spirit would move among us. And, Father, that as we contemplate uh, the subject, uh, it will help us to be effective ministers of yours in this world. So we ask your blessing and the power of your spirit in this place. For it's in Christ our Savior's name. Amen. Okay, thank you for coming. Um, I wanted to begin this morning's uh, forum with just picking up yesterday a little bit about what um, uh, Eric was saying in the Forsaking the Assembly, because it's a, it's a, it's a bridge go to right into what we're talking about. He says, in Canada, as a nation, uh, the weekly attendance in church is 10%. And if you look at his uh, chart, he breaks down the evangelicals from the period of 1996 to 2013. And he says that those that attended weekly dropped from 49 to 40%. Uh, Those that attended monthly or less than weekly dropped 3%. Those that attend just yearly or less than monthly uh, actually went up. But that's that's a bad move because, you know, they're only going once a year, and there's more that you know are, are doing that. And then those that attend never increase uh, to eight uh, percent. So then, if you look at the ACC membership of the North American context, just from our directory there, during that same period of '96 to 2013, there's been a drop in membership of 233, or 6.2 percent drop. Now, if they're not members, you know, obviously there's less attendance, but this doesn't even factor in the, uh, the total of attendance. I didn't even have a chance to look at that. Uh, what was interesting also in um, Eric's uh, forum was that in the, the, the very short survey, and it wasn't complete, of the, the churches that responded to his survey, he said that of the potential uh, attendees for Bible class, there's only 39% that attend. And my question is, with that kind of attendance, with that kind of you know, commitment, how are we going to expand the kingdom? Because if we're having trouble in the church to get people to study the Bible, um, although attendance is there for Sunday mornings, it's, uh, he, uh, according to his survey, it was 100%, uh, we're going to be very ill-equipped as we go into a post-Christian culture. Now, I've used for a lot of my analysis uh, Barna uh, uh, surveys, and uh, I have a book here, uh, The Trends for 2017. But he uses 15 metrics to identify whether or not we're in a post-Christian culture. Uh, the first five were the, the person does not believe in God, they identify as an atheist or agnostic, they disagree that faith is important in their lives. They have not prayed to God in the last year, and they've never made a commitment to Jesus. The other ones, uh, continuing this uh, metrics, they disagree that the Bible is accurate. 
They have not donated money to a church, and that's in the last year, and they've not attended a Christian church in the last year. And they agree that Jesus committed sins. And now, uh, it's interesting that 52% of the adults believe that Jesus Christ was human and sinned like others, and 2% are not sure. Uh, and if you look at that um, aspect, the, there's an increase in the millennials, and we'll talk more about that, that there's a higher percentage of the millennials that think that Jesus was just like any other human being, and he sinned as well, which is very problematic if you want to bring the message of salvation. Uh, because if there is, you know, if Jesus was not sinless, then we don't have a hope uh, for our atonement. And then the this tenth metric is they do not feel a responsibility to share their faith. The last uh, five were they've not read the Bible in the last week, they've not volunteered at a church in the last week, attended Sunday school in the last week, attended a religious small group in the last week, or have not participated in a house church in the last year. So that's the metrics that he uses pretty generous uh, if you would think about that. So with that result, you know, do I, he will take those 15 metrics and analyze and he says, if 60% of those factors, you know, are there, it's a post-Christian and highly post-Christian is 80 per, uh, 80%. So the result is the nation is at a 44% level of post-Christian and within that um, level 12% are highly post-Christian. So um, we are facing a huge hurdle as we want to go out and be lights and witnesses uh, into uh, the world. Now what's interesting is if you look at the 18 to 29 year old range, and that's within the whole millennial group, which is a little bit of the focus of this um, uh, forum, is 17% are in the total population, but only 10% are in the church. So you see that in the whole millennial group, there's a big gap of who's um, attending church or not. Um, so 59% of them, uh, those who grew up in Christian churches, they walk away uh, from their faith. And the unchurched segment, which means you haven't been to church in the last uh, six weeks, uh, is growing um, in the millennial realm. I mean, a significant growth of 8%. Um, and then when you ask him, what does church do for you? Uh, it doesn't even make the top 10 uh, that if they're looking to increase their faith, church is not the place that they're looking to. It doesn't even get to the top 10. Uh, so in this post-Christian culture, there's a growing resistance to the church. Uh, the church is becoming more and more maligned in, in uh, the media. Um, there's a growing Bible illiteracy. And there's a significant lack of any knowledge of church history. And this does two things. It diminishes the value of church if they don't understand uh, the church in history. And it lessens their ability to understand the times. And again, you know, if you look at that chapter that, that scripture comes out of in First Chronicles, I think it's 12. It says, you know, it's a list... David's been anointed king. Saul is still the king. But there's a list of people going over to David's side. And it talks about the warriors, and they were mighty in battle and valiant in battle. And then all of a sudden, in the middle, there's this verse that says, And then the man of Issachar, uh, who understood the times and what to do, they stand out as something very important. Even more important, uh, or is equal, is with the valiant warriors. There's a lack of attendance and the lack of influence, not only to the church towards the, the generations, but the church within the larger culture.
So the culture of Christianity, what do we have out there? First of all, I would say we have a confused Christianity. And uh, I will lay that out a little bit uh, more. Uh, There's this idea of being born again, but they don't even have a biblical uh, worldview. Um, Hold off for that for a minute, because I'm going to describe in a little more detail of what Barna uses to evaluate who's born again and who's not. There's the evangelical, and we'll look at that as well, but they're not radical. They're just maybe pew-sitters. They're just bench warmers. But if you look at the Christian nation that we're supposed to be, 80%, if you talk about to the adult population, 80% are concerned about the moral condition of the society. But what's interesting, only 50% strongly agree or somewhat agree that whatever, notice this, they agree that whatever is right for your life or works best for you is the only truth you can know. So the moral evaluation standard is, it's whatever you want. It's whatever you think is best. And then if you look at the sub-bullet uh, points, it's a much greater uh, emphasis with the millennials than the elders. And I'm almost an elder. I'm a boomer. But um, the elders, which, that was a surprising number to me, that those that are 72, I think, and over, 31% are falling into this category that whatever is right for your life or works best, <clears throat> it's, it's up to you to know what the truth is. So... There are some huge, huge hurdles. Uh, We have a confused Christianity out there. We also have a comfortable Christianity. This quote comes from Barna. When it comes to time to truly make a tangible commitment to knowing and loving God and allowing him to change one's character and lifestyle, most people stop short. So it's kind of like, I don't want to stand out, you know, and there's the forum going on. I I don't want to be peculiar um, in this culture. I want to be just like everyone else. Not only do you have a comfortable Christianity, a confused Christianity, you have a contented Christianity. Far from living in a world elsewhere, the faithful in the United States are remarkably like everyone else. There's a consumer Christianity, and this is really prevalent among the millennials and, and even the Generation Z. They shop around until I find something that fits me. It's all about me, and there's a lot of things going on in culture that's Uh, emphasizing and um, expanding them. There's a cultural hostility that we're seeing that never before. The media, the government, um, you've got the the atheists becoming very outspoken. Uh, It's just a growing, growing cultural hostility. And this is where we are called to be missionaries uh, to the world. And then in the college culture, what's interesting, it's it's very, very liberal. So if you're sending your kid off to, to college, understand that in a survey done, 72% of the college professors consider themselves liberal, and only 15% are conservative. And the ones that are conservative, especially the ones that are even biblical, are maligned. They sometimes are, are sanctioned. They lose their job. They have to appeal and go through a legal process to even get back into the college system. And there's a lot of student uh, discrimination as well. So we see that this is a a trend of influence uh, that's really impacting not only the kids from the the church, but obviously the kids in the world. Yesterday, um, Eric mentioned culture is not causing churches to compromise. Churches are compromising, and culture is saying it is okay. Now, I want to give you a little bit different uh, quote. I want you to think for a moment that you're a fish, okay? You're in the water. And so let's look at this quote here. 
There are two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, Morning, boys. How's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, What is water? Do, do you understand what is being said there? Is it, a fish doesn't think about water. It's in the water. It's not even something that they would think about. And what we're saying in is culture is like the water around us. We hardly stop to discern how it's influencing us. But it is. It's, it's like the water all around us. And so we need to be aware of what is in culture. I've taken a lot of this from Barnett Trends 2017. A single day on the internet, 2 million blog posts, 860,000 hours of YouTube videos. You know, that to me is just mind-boggling because, you know, I'm always seeing young people looking for the next YouTube video that's, you know, that, that's funny or uh, whatever, or it's got somebody, you know, doing something stupid and hurting themselves. And 5 billion pieces of content are, are shared on Facebook. Those are staggering amounts. 45% of Americans say they struggle to go one day without the Internet access. 61%, and this is an important thing, are on the website, at least daily, to learn something new. Okay. So the Internet is becoming the source of education. It's where I'm learning things, okay? Not only in young people in the nation, but within the church. 52% you know, use their mobile or smartphone to check social media site, and then you've got um, cable TV and data. Now, compare that to how many are going to Bible class. 39% of our church members are going to Bible class. And yet, you know, there's huge, huge influences that are coming into them through all of these different venues that certainly do not have a godlike or godly attitude. 60% say they never unplug, 27, 21%, and this is just a little bit of statistics, 17% have taken a permanent break from their you know, devices, 11% part of the day, 5% one day a week. I, I wouldn't want to venture uh, a survey here of where do we fit into that. But it's something to think about. You know, there's, there's new studies that are coming out about uh, how the technology is influencing us. Uh, it, it, it is. It's the culture around us. Technology is part of the culture, and it's changing how we relate to one another. Um, and there's just books and books and stuff to, to deal more um, uh, comprehensively with that. We're in a state of digital overwhelm. I mean, there's so much information to process. I can't even get through my emails, you know, um, uh, significantly enough. Um, and I, I'm still trying in, uh, to get through them. Uh, <clears throat> but this idea of connection, part of the culture that has happened, that especially you see as you deal with young people, is this idea of it's easy, but it also brings this instant gratification sense. There is a thrill factor in going back to Facebook, to Snapchat, to you know, all of these online uh, aspects uh, or uh, platforms because I want to get something new. And this, this is coming out more and more in the studies. Um, they're constantly checking their emails, Facebook. They think that there's this one in a million chance that something really amazing is inside, you know. And they'll spend hours. You know, I remember when Facebook first came out, <clears throat> we had some mentors living in our home. And we would be together doing something, and he had his computer out, you know. 
I you know, finally asked after like a week of this, I go, what are you doing? He goes, oh, I'm checking Facebook. And I'm going, um, well, you know, we're, we're all right here. Goes, oh, no, I got uh, 259 friends. And so I'm thinking about 259 friends on Facebook. And if all 259 say something, how much time is spent just, you know, tracking down all of these Facebook posts and then reposts and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but there's this thrill factor. And this guy really fit into this factor, you know. Um, it's, it's the effort to find the next high. And in seeking that digital high, they spend so much time and they're consumed by that, they actually are beginning to burn out. Uh, sometimes it's a fast process. Sometimes it's a low process. Uh, they're trying to find that on their phone or their iPod or their, their computer, but it's, uh, it's only found when they're offline. Not only in the digital overwhelm, but you're, uh, there's a tendency to work more, to waste more time, to be more distracted. And the research is just beginning to show the consequences of technology and how it's impacting culture as a whole. Now, I want to, that's the backdrop of, the, of where we're living. Then I want to see who's living in this culture. And then I want to look at the generations. Now, uh, Barna uses this um, category of the millennials. So I'm saying there, if you look at camp, it's anybody in the 15 to 33 range. Now, not everybody uses the same dates. They have different reasons for that. And so uh, what I'm saying is this is kind of a middle one, okay? Uh, the Gen Xers, you know, um, and the singles um, that um, uh, these are uh, what Eric used. Uh, they're the 34 to 52-year-olds, 50, uh, the boomers, or the empty nesters, uh, the 53 to 71, and then you have the elders that are the 72. Um, many times you see this uh, term used, the greatest generation, uh, because of the, you know, that which was, um, you know, went going through the depression, going through the wars, et cetera, et cetera. You also have the teens. Uh, when you read Barna's survey, he breaks down teens, and that's 13 to 17, and then adults are 18 and over, but then you have Generation Z. And this comes from a book um, that I just uh, haven't even finished reading, and I'm not going to go too much in it, but I find it very fascinating. He uses a different um, metrics for, you know, what is millennial and what is the Generation Z. There's some overlap, um, but I think he has some really good insights. Think about what Generation Z how it's different from most of us here, okay? Google has always existed for them. Email is now the formal way. Text and tweets are the informal way of communication. And they've always had four foul-mouthed kids playing in South Park. You know, if, if people are watching, I mean, if kids watching TV are watching this, you see how it's also influencing culture. But this has been, you know, part of the diet since they've been around. Hong Kong has always been under Chinese rule, and they've grown up treating Wi-Fi as an entitlement. Um, that became really clear to us when we started to put restrictions on Wi-Fi in our legacy um, uh, classes this year. Um, it was like, whoa, World War IV. Um, but anyways, um, cell phones are plentiful. Uh, therapeutic marijuana has always been legal in a growing number of states. It's now um, in Ohio. Um, and, you know, uh, when we were out with the youth choir traveling through Oregon and Washington, there were bus stops that, you know, you could just pick up, you know, your bag of um, marijuana, and it didn't even have to be for therapeutic um, reasons. 
or medical reasons. Remember when camcorders, you know, were shoulder-mounted bazookas? Um, you know, they don't even know what it is. Um, it's, it's smartphones now. I've been taking videos of my kid, and I'm posting it online. Um, and they don't know how, how fortunate they were to enjoy a budget surplus. You know, we, uh, they, that went away uh, in the first four years. Of so of Generation Z, it's the largest population segment, okay? It's, he defines them under age 25. The millennials make up 24.5%, Gen Xers 15.4, and baby boomers 23.6. He uses the term that they're probably going to be the last generation. Not because he's you know, a doomsday guy, but he just thinks uh, the pace of generational change is happening so fast that you're not going to be able to break it down into 15, 17, 25-year segments. It's going to be like four, five, or six type. Uh, that's what we're facing as it goes on. Um, most were born after 9-11, and, and they've all lived through two economic crashes. And so because of those crashes, there's a growing, you see how culture and surrounding influences, there's a growing increase of those that favor socialism over the, you know, uh, what we have in the United States or, well, I don't know where Canada is right now, but, um, you know, so, but it, it influences what's going on. Um, Generation Z, and this applies to the millennials as well and, and to all of us, is there's a global internet without just no restraints. Uh, one of the things that I'm not even going into is pornography. It is so prevalent, it, you know, outside the church and even if there's a large uh, influence within the church. Um, but there's few constraints. This has an interesting aspect to it and something that we are going to deal with. 25% are online constantly, and 91% go to, to bed with their device, you know. And it almost seems like sleep is secondary. If, if something buzzes at night, well, that's more important. I'll even look at it then. Um, they, they also spend more money online than any other generation. And the one that, to me, is very, um, I think, important is this one. They don't need the help of a mentor or teacher. You know, got a question? Ask Google. Look it up if I'm going to take the, the time. And I just, oh, it's online. It must be accurate. It must be right. So what's going, happening is there's a growing independence. I don't need a mentor or teacher. And there's a growing chasm between wisdom and information. Well, I have a lot of knowledge. I have a lot of information. But do I really know how to apply that? And so what, what's happening with this next generation is you're going to find fewer and fewer of the same hey, can you help me with this problem I'm having? It's no, I'll go to Google, I'll look at some source, find something that fits me. And they don't even lack the ability to know, is this a good source? You know, should I question this? It's, it's online. So there's a growing gap there. And, and, and again, there's always an exception to these. And thankfully, you know, many are because of uh, the influence that they're getting at home and in their church and of a biblical worldview. Another um, very problematic issue is Generation Z is more private and online. You know, you have these anonymous um, platforms such as Snapchat, Secret, and Whisper, and um, they'll use that because, like with Snapchat, it's gone in like 24 hours or, or some time frame like that. And um, 
I honestly was dealing with this issue on Youth Choir where uh, somebody had sent somebody a, a Snapchat and um, it came back. And when I confronted the person, he goes, oh, this is, this is embarrassing, this is awkward. I never thought it would come back to, to be known. But, you know, the Bible is very clear that be sure your sin will find you out. But the reason they used that was I can do this. I can kind of get outside of my Christian, um, uh, you know, who I am and then be someone different and then um, get away with it. And so even though some might be not doing it, think about the growing temptation there is um, among the uh, young people or Generation Z for that. And they use social media as their nurture. It's, it's their mother's milk. Um, I mean, they, it, you try to take it away from them, and it's almost a meltdown. It, it's like the baby wanting their food and wanting it now. So here are the expressions of cultural identity that um, Barney uses as a definition. There are those that just identify themselves as Christian, okay? And, and this will become a little bit more understandable as we go through this. There are those that say they choose something else, Muslim, you know, Jewish, um, Hindu, or whatever. And then there are those that say, I have no faith. Um, uh, they're atheist or agnostic or the nuns. You know, so when you have a list to pick from, they pick none. And that's a growing segment within culture. Then you have what's called born again. Now, this is almost, when I started thinking about this, um, this was years ago, um, the level of commitment of what Barna uses to identify born again is really, really basic. And it certainly would not fly in our churches, which I'm very thankful for. But I remember a young sister coming to me and saying, oh, I met a guy. And I said, well, tell me about him. And, well, he's a Christian. Well, is he born? Oh, yes, he's born again. Well, here, they made a personal commitment to Jesus, and it's still important. And they believe when they die, they will go to heaven because they've confessed their sins and accepted Jesus as their Savior. Now, those are very important, but I think it's somewhat lacking. So, you know, as we engage in culture, the born-again I think it's important to begin there and to accept that, but to probe and go deeper. The non-born-again or notional is they, they identify as Christian, but they don't even meet that criteria. So I'm a Christian, but I don't even know if I, have a, I may or may not have made a commitment to Jesus. That's still important. I may or not believe in heaven or hell. Um, and so, again, we're living in a very confused Christianity. There are those that practice Christianity, and a practicing Christian is someone who's attended a worship service in the past month. So that's a pretty low barrier to, to, uh, to be there. And then you got, and this practicing Christians is, they break it down into practicing Catholics and Protestants and various different mainline and then non-mainline Protestants. Don't want to camp on those too much. And then those that are non-practicing they still identify, though, as a Christian. So now I want to focus a little more uh, in depth on the evangelicals, because that's a term that you'll hear in uh, media. I don't know if they're using the same definition. Um, 
but it's certainly more than simply the born again. So the evangelical is a born again. Okay, so they meet those first two, two criteria, but there's seven other criteria that they have. One is their faith is very important in their lives, and they, they believe they have a personal responsibility to share their religious belief about Christ with non-Christians. I think that's very important. They believe that Satan exists. They believe that Jesus Christ lived a, sinful life, a sinless life on earth. And I think that's very important, as you see uh, in the contrast of the previous slide that I showed. And they assert that the Bible is accurate in all that it teaches. Very, very important in the culture that we're living in that has kind of moved away from the authority of Scripture. They also believe that eternal salvation is possible only through grace, not works. Yeah, cannot work my way to heaven. And they describe God as the all-knowing, all-powerful, perfect deity who created the universe and still rules today. And so what that bottom little note says is, Barna does not ask, are you an evangelical? He asks these uh, questions, these nine criteria are asked in question form, and there's, there's more than that. And if you check at least those nine, then he classifies you as an evangelical. It's not like, oh yeah, I'm an evangelical, and they don't even know what it means. Now, I want to focus a little bit on, on the millennials. <clears throat> now, I want you to be also thinking as we go through this at a very rapid pace, and, and we're only kind of skimming across the surface here. Think about encounters that you are having. Think about uh, those that uh, you work with. How am I... How do I identify them in this whole uh, criteria? And how can I begin to think about to engage them? Uh, so the millennial generation is very mosaic in the aspect of their life. Okay? And, and they're sometimes called the mosaics. And the reason is, if you look at a mosaic, it's, it's a bunch of different colored little pieces of um, tile. And they're put together to make a picture. But they're all over the place. They're not black or yellow, white or green, red, or it's, it's you know, beige and everything else in between. There's no real attribute that dominates them, like the prior generations, and they're comfortable with contradiction. You know, they can live an illogical lifestyle, and you can talk to them and say, well, that doesn't make sense. That's illogical. Yeah, okay. Uh, man, I, if you have some ways to overcome that, I mean, I'm desperately trying to figure that out. They're postmodern in their thinking, and they're nonlinear or um, illogical in their thinking as well. They're very comfortable with those contradictions. Now, when we talk about millennials and their life, their career is essential to their identity. Okay? Relationships are the driving force. They belong to groups, but they maintain a fierce individualism. And that's a kind of an interesting paradox. Um, they want to be associated with large groups, but they want to be fiercely independent. And so what you have in culture is a more of a fracturing into smaller and smaller subsections in, in groups uh, because of that individualistic nature. They're very skeptical of leaders and products and institutions because think about how they've grown up. Um, well, first of all, they bank without going to the bank. You know, you, you give them a paycheck, take a picture, and it's deposited. Uh, they buy without going to the store. Everything's online. Uh, Amazon delivers it. And they want to hear great sermons without going to church. Okay. These are the things that we're beginning to encounter more and more as we move through culture. And this is a highlight of the millennials, which is the future of the church. 
Um, they check their, their phones first thing in the morning and right before they go to bed. Can't live without that information or what's going on. 30% say they love their cell phone, and half say their gadgets actually get in the way of relationships. At least they're being a little bit honest there, and they're recognizing that relationships are in, being impacted. They consume more hours of media from more sources than any previous generation. Probably not new news to you if you're a parent. In constant search for fresh experiences and new sources of motivation, it, you know, if you talk to uh, uh, employers that employ a large group of millennials, he says, throw everything that you studied in management, consultant books before, throw it out the window, you've got to begin totally different, a whole new approach with millennials. <clears throat> and, you know, they're prone to not persevere in any task. Um, let me just show, because uh, they, they want to move on to something that's more exciting that grabs them quickly. Um, and we talked about that already. So, of these millennials, or the 20-somethings, they, a third of them move to a new residence every year. Here, packing up your house and moving somewhere else, you know. Maybe it's because of a job, likely, because you'll see there. Um, but 40% move back home with their parents at least once. Anybody have that experience? All right. Your average job, they average seven jobs in their 20s. So from 20 to 29, they're in seven different jobs. You know, I mean, an employer likes continuity because you invest a lot of money in, into that to train them, and then they're gone. They're moving on because it didn't grab me. It's not holding my attention. If you think that's happening in the culture of business and employment, think about the church. It's got to grab my attention. Two-thirds live with a romantic partner, and marriage occurs much later. These are the, 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 the things that we're encountering as we go out to, to witness of the gospel. Uh, so the millennials, they came of age when institutions were failing them left and right. Banks, you know, government, you know, distrust of government. And so they are skeptical of all institutions, including the church. It's part of the culture that they grew up in. It's the water that they're swimming in. So they're very skeptical. And so, you know, as a boomer, I have to be very patient with that skepticism. And, and to go sometimes even a second mile, there's cynicism. And they look at church, uh, at least 60% of the millennials think church is somewhat hypocritical. You know, they're two-faced. They say one thing and they don't do another. And then there are so many other voices and options. So that nearly 60%, or I think the other one said 59%, have dropped out of church. So in the millennials in the church, there's this 30, 40, 30. And it's church, 30% say church is not important at all. Then there's the middle that's you know, in between uh, those, that, the other 30% that say it's very important. So you've got 70% in this category, well, hey, you know, you know, I can live without church. And so to, to go out and as our witnessing tool, to simply invite somebody to church, 70%, you're going to have a 70% failure there, that, or um, likely a 70%. So, but within the not important category, that's broken down a little bit more. 30% say, I don't need to go to church. I can find God somewhere else. 35%, church is not personally relevant to me. 
Now, that could be a very selfish approach, like it's got to appeal to me, I've got to like it, I've got to like the music, I've got to like the preacher, I've got to like the, the church building, you know, but it's not personally relevant. So um, church is boring, uh, you know, it's the same old thing. It's just you sing a song, um, pray and listen to the preacher and go home. Uh, God is missing from the church and church is out of date. So all of these different statistics within that uh, category of church is not important. So then those that find it very important, 54% say they go to church to be closer to God. 31% I can learn about God there. 17% just goes because that's a duty. The Bible told me to go. And 14% say my kids can learn about God. And, and there's a... It's a lessening, but it used to be much bigger years ago that, you know, parents send the kids to church because they're out of the house and then I can have some free time and my kids can learn about God there. You know, we encountered a lot of that in Worcester. <clears throat> parents could care less. You know, they didn't even check our background or anything. They just get the kids out of the house. We're good with that, you know. And then um, the church, 7% go to church because uh, it does good work in the world. And this, the 7%, this is what the millennials are looking at. They want to see a church that's really practicing what it preaches. It says, they think the communities of faith should lead the charge on justice issues like poverty. Is the church doing something to alleviate poverty? If it does, the church becomes more credible in the eyes of the millennial than uh, otherwise. And they will criticize churches when they spend all of their resources on themselves, building huge, bigger buildings, you know, um, huge budgets for, you know, the band and the youth and, I mean, all of that, and they're not looking outside. I mean, and this was done in looking at a lot of these mega churches, and they expect sacrificial generosity, and it's non-negotiable when it comes to communities that claim to follow Jesus. That's how we're being evaluated by the millennial generation. Is it really putting into practice some of those things that we see in the first uh, uh, in the New Testament and in the Book of Acts? <clears throat> Millennials um, are looking at life-shaping relationships. Young adults who say, and this is very critical. I think this is we're already kind of getting into the category of how does the church respond? What is important for the church to be thinking about? And we'll do a lot more of this uh, tomorrow. But the young adults who stay in the church, okay, they, 59% versus 31, so uh, have a close personal friendship with an older adult. So what that's saying is 31% had no relationship with an older adult. Now, I'm not talking about a peer. I'm talking about a mentor, someone older, a generation up or two. Of those that stay in church, nearly 60% said, I can identify someone in the church that was mentoring me or was a friend. They've had a mentor, or, and that's other than a pastor or a youth minister. So someone a generation up. Young adults who leave the church, seven out of the ten who dropped out, did not have that close relationship. That's thinking about these aspects in another way. And nearly nine out of ten did, have, did not have a mentor. So now, the, the caution is, correlation does not equal causation. It's, you know, the idea is, you know, are we focused on Jesus? And we, we need to dig deeper in that, but I think it's an important to underline in our minds 
that the church must have a mentoring capacity. One of the things that I didn't even know about, I kind of it was accidentally uh, stumbled upon, that in Worcester, you know, we've had uh, groups of uh, young students come in, that legacy students, and in the past couple of years or three years, we have assigned them, not only they go to class, you know, um, five days a week, but we have assigned them someone older in the church as a mentor. And they are to meet with them once a week uh, during you know, their free time. And out of all of the comments that have come in the last few years, nearly 100% have said that this, the, the community was so important to them. And now the community wasn't just the teaching community, it was the community of the church, and especially those mentor-student relationships. It made an impact. And one student even says, I want this, I want to go back to my church and do something like this. And so this idea of having a mentor is absolutely essential within the church to maintain, this is just to maintain those who are in the church. Okay, so if you look at and analyze the millennials, 30% have no religious affiliation. Yeah, they just, they don't care, they don't think about it. 43% of the millennials uh, who regularly attend church drop out between high school and, and, uh, and 30. And this is a little bit of a difference on the, what I just spoke about, but this quantifies the number. That, that's 8 million, you know, in that time frame um, that are dropping out uh, and not going to church. That's a huge, huge evangelistic field. 50%, and this is staggering too, 57% are less active in church today than they were at 15. So even if they stay in church, they're not doing anything in church. Now, that could be problematic because they don't have opportunity, or maybe they're just not interested, something's not grabbing their attention, whatever. But something that we have to be aware of. He says, there's a growing resistance to church uh, among the atheists, born-agains, and millennials. Now, you know, when we were in Vancouver with the youth choir this year, the bus was pulling up to our drop-off spot, and in front of the bus walked two guys dressed in rainbow-colored suits. I mean, this was bright, and they had their hats on, and they were proud and out loud. And so I'm thinking, you know, of culture and all of this that's going on, a growing resistance to church, this, this activism that's out there that's, that's in your face, so to speak. How would we respond? I had to ask myself, how would I respond if they walked in the church door? Would, I, would my natural response be first to love them as a human being and to understand that Jesus Christ died for them as he did for me? I don't think I'm right there yet. I'm trying to get there. But that was a kind of a, like a big flash in, in my face. Like, wait a minute. You know, all of this information about culture and, and the millennials and, and, and how it's being changed, you know, how am I going to respond to that? Am I going to respond, first of all, out of the heart of Christ? Christ let the prostitutes come to her, to him, and, and to, to wash his feet, you know. And that was as offensive in that culture as these guys walking in the back door of the church and just being uh, loud and out uh, and out about their uh, lifestyle. 
Um, there's a growing uh, biblical illiteracy. I mean, you know, people are reading their Bible less, and so when you talk to them and you want to, you know, talk about Scripture, like, what are you talking about? You know, um, and not only is there a growing biblical illiteracy, there's a growing illiteracy period because you know I'm not reading a book; I'm reading something else, or or show me a movie that tells me the same story, or you know, and, and highlights the thing. But I remember when we first moved to Ohio. Um, we got to know our neighbor next door, and, and Margie started to have a Bible study with her. And at, at that point in time, I, I don't think we started with the King James Version. We started with, I think, the NIV. We gave her an NIV, and we were kind of... And she came to us, and she goes, I don't understand any of this. I don't understand these words. And so then we ended up you know, trying to get an even easier translation. It wasn't even a translation. I think it was the New Living Bible. And oh, I can understand this much better. Now, we did tell her, you know, this is a great starter. Read this through, but don't camp here. Move on. Get something to... But in the illiteracy that we're having is people don't even understand words anymore. And, and to read it, you know, even um, uh, an easier translation like the NIV or ESV is, you know, at a, maybe at a, a ninth or tenth grade level, you know, whereas um, the KJV is a much higher level. I'm finding that even in culture that we have to be equipped to take them to a much more basic level. And then they don't have any knowledge of church history, and then therefore they have a diminished sense of value of the church, and it doesn't make a difference. Here's a quote from Barna in 2016. Millennials are leaving the church, nearly 6 in 10 young people who grew up in Christ are walking away. It's increased, and when asked, it's a church that make their top 10s. I brought that forward in a slide, but look at this. The fact that the millennials continue to leave the church in larger numbers than ever before when they reach adulthood suggests a need to either revise current approaches or double down on our efforts to equip and prepare the youth, today's youth. Another quote, kids don't shuffle along in unison on the road to maturity. They slouch toward adulthood at an uneven, highly individual pace. Why that's important is because I think sometimes if we want to create a program to solve the problems, we have to realize that it's all at an individual pace. Uh, first of all, because they are self-occupied uh, or preoccupied with themselves, but they're all moving. <laughs> and I like the term, they're slouching towards adulthood. It's a, in the millennial generation, you see more and more that, you know, it's whatever. I don't need to worry about a job. I don't need to worry about the future. And I understand that. If that is, um, you know, submitted and under the lordship of Jesus Christ where he is Lord and he's going to take care of everything. I don't need, you know, the issues. But you see this in the generation that, you know, you know, it doesn't matter if I get an education. It doesn't matter, you know, what happens. But when they do come, as I mentioned before, they're looking for something they're looking for something real. They're looking for something tangible. They're, they're looking for something that matches up with what they say. I'm still intrigued by the, um, the quote that Gandhi made. Gandhi lived in, in um, the United Kingdom for quite a few years, up in England as well. And he always, and, and for the, most of his life, he carried a New Testament in his, uh, with him. And he makes this quote, he says, I like the Christ of the Bible. It's the Christians I don't. And why? Because there was such a disparity between what he read Christ did and practiced and believed and what was happening within the church. So, we've got a few minutes. 
Um, tomorrow, I want to deal more on the church and how does it respond. Um, I think there's some important things that we can look at. But in the interim, any questions that we have about oh, seven or eight, ten minutes, any questions that you have, maybe experiences that you've had with millennials or Generation Zs, uh, or maybe some uh, help for me as you know in dealing with some of those uh, subjects. So feel free. I think there's a mic um, right here. Hiring. Okay, let them turn up the volume a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So. I've had to also kind of absorb and embrace and understand the millennials. A couple other things just to add to everything you've shared is um, they're the first generation whose parents from the young age have affirmed and given them attaboys and told them that they can achieve anything. And so when you combine a generation now that has access to information at their fingertips and feels that they can do anything, they're highly confident. Um, an independent group because of that. So it's, it's understanding that and understanding how the church can take advantage of it. It's not something that we should look down on, even though even within the workplace there's a really high level of criticism to the fact that they're so confident yet they don't know anything. Right? These kids have been taught that they, that they can do anything. And so yeah. it's how do you take advantage of that confidence um, rather than put it down and tell them you're stupid, you don't know anything yet which is kind of the, the initial feel. And then the other one is that there's a high level of, an, there's this need for affirmation that they, that they come with, because that's the, what they've gotten all their lives, um, is the, the attaboy is so important to them, um, because that's, that's the way they're raised. And that's just some of the things that, um, you know, I could go on as well, but those are some, just some key things that I thought that might be worth adding to what you've already shared. And that's important to note, there's a, uh, up here in front, that's important to note on the um, affirmations, and that's why they go to technology and they go to Facebook and they go to all of this because it tends to make them feel important. And, um, and, and, and me as a boomer, I was taught a work ethic and I didn't, you know, I lived without the affirmation, so I have to get into my mindset that I need to affirm these people, like Bob was saying, is they're expecting it. And if they don't get it, uh, you know, I mean, how often do you go up to someone, to, to millennial in church, and go, hey, I'm so glad to see you in church today. Well, you know, I mean, I don't expect somebody to say that to me. I, and, but in, in one sense, they're more desirous of that, Tony. Well, we have to understand also now we live in a postmodernism culture. Yeah. And rather... Without understanding that culture, we sort of we wonder what in God's name are they doing? We don't understand their behavior. Yeah. So it's like in medicine. If you don't know the disease well, you can't respond properly to it. So rather than sort of shoving them away, we should understand their culture yeah. much better so that we can deal with them in a more intelligent and godly way also. Yeah. yeah, and postmodernism is, you know, there are no absolutes. It's like you said, everybody has their own truth. Everybody's interpreting it for themselves. And... You know, I have found that the more that you open yourself up to um, the, the culture, the messier life gets. But in one sense, can I use that as an excuse not to be involved in culture? Because I think of the, the first church. They were persecuted and they were scattered. They had to leave their homes. They had sometimes to leave extended family. They had to go to a new place. They had to leave their businesses. And, you know, so... If my life gets a little bit more uncomfortable or messy or, you know, whatever, why should I think that I'm somewhat different? Now, the mic's over here. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I had a question around uh, 
in the generation Y, I guess, in this case, and going into the generation Z or Z, um, is it true that they place a lot less emphasis on material things, as in, you know, in the boomers or the those coming out of the post-war and even in our generation, uh, spent a lot more time sort of thinking of the future, building up a, let's say, a kingdom in this world of, of our possessions and in our careers in that sense, versus they are more, let's say, creative thinkers, more just thinking about the, the here and now and, and have less uh, connection, because they're moving around all the time, to, let's say, material things. Things, or is that also perhaps a stereotype? I would say, generally, and feel anybody else can feel free to respond, I would say that there is somewhat of this feeling of, you know, the whatever. Um, I don't need the possessions that my parents had. Um, and, but I do, I don't say that's across the board. I would say that many of them are going off to college, and that becomes a focus on their lives. And especially if you think about the church in general, not the AC church, if you look at the church in general, many are going off to college unequipped with with a firm foundation in Scripture. And when they lose that foundation in Scripture, then they only have the the, uh, material side of it. They, They tend to emphasize that until they become disillusioned with that. And that may be earlier, be late in life. You had mentioned a description there about millennials are looking for, uh, those that are looking to the church are expecting or looking for the church to impact the culture or engage in the social yeah. ills. They're looking or something for authenticity that. also. And, and they, they're measuring the authenticity with how is the church involved in culture? What's it doing to Right, and the social ills of yeah. culture, that yeah. sort of thing. How sincere is that actual? statement in them because obviously it takes a lot of self-sacrifice to actually plug into that and so when they find that are they are they actually plugging into that and contributing in that way uh, not as what, much as they say right but that's true on every survey just about across right and, and i mean we're probably the same ourselves yeah, yeah. Um, but i would see that that's probably certainly one area of opportunity at least to try to connect with them right and if they're looking to be involved that is the first place uh, and a, a very good opportunity for them. Okay, uh, where is it now? Yes. There's been a lot of talk as to whether or not we are in a post-Christian culture, and I think a lot of times we view the alternative as being a Christian culture. And I think it's important, and I would challenge all of us, and myself included, to take advantage of these statistics and not look at it as if we're on the defense but become opportunists and take advantage of what these millennials are thinking and actually view the culture right now as pre-Christian. Yes, and I think that's um, some of the terminology that's used as well. Let's, let's make it a Christian culture. Maybe yeah. we're not there yet. And, and um, you know, two comments on that. Um, the worst thing that we can do as a church is build the walls higher, arm the gates, put more sentries on the wall, and just become more isolated. That is, um, we'll just hurt ourselves. Um, but the other uh, aspect is to engage the culture in a meaningful way, we have to be aware of the culture that uh, we're in. Okay. Okay, just a few comments. Uh, the idea that the U.S. was ever a Christian nation, a Christian culture, I think we have to give that up. What we can foundationally speak of is that the founding documents 
were of Christian persuasion. The founders used a lot of the tenets of Christianity, but to say that we ever were a Christian nation, one, or that we had a Christian culture, uh, we're looking back with rose-colored glasses. So the struggle has always been to get God's word out. The other issue is, if you look at the history of the mainline Protestant denominations, their downfall has been their accommodation to the wants and demands of the generations. I mean, you know, we have the, the women bishops, the women this, the women that. Okay, the, the feminist movement made their inroads. The LBGT have made their inroads. Everything in the culture is now almost accepted by the mainline denominations. And that has been part of their downfall. So I think if you go ahead, and as you should, spread the gospel, engage the culture, we have to be careful that in doing so, we do not accommodate the culture. Accommodate, I mean, it's easy to say, you know, this person wants this from the church, this person wants that from the church. But is that actually the function of the church to provide the wants, not just needs, but is it the job of the church to provide the wants of all the individuals? And I would say, no, that is not biblical. And to say, as some churches now say, say, well, we are a liberation theology church. We are all for social causes. Well, yeah, Jesus did work with that, but he said, hey, you know, he was talking to the woman. He said, you know, all these people are suffering, you know. So is the focus on trying to cure society's ills? I mean, the, the bottom line cause of those ills is the rejection of Jesus Christ. So that should remain the focus of the church. Jesus Christ not trying to throw money at social issues, at poverty, at all these things that, that churches say, well, we're engaged by throwing money and accepting everybody, but we've lost Jesus Christ. So those works are worthless. Yeah, and, and, and I'm, I'm glad for that. Together. I'm glad for that clarification because to become just a socially minded church is just utter chaos and ruin. It's just a matter of time. Uh, there's enough evidence, as you pointed out, to that. Um, and yet, at the same time, we need to find that that way to meet those needs, if they are legitimate needs, without compromising the gospel. And Paul was very adamant that the gospel was never compromised. Brett. So being a uh, millennial myself um, and an early stage millennial, because I'm kind of at the tail end or the beginning of the movement or whatever, um, or the generation, I think there is a great opportunity, and I think a lot of us see that, right, um, in the sense that, you know, you have a generation of critical thinkers. So you have, you have a generation of people that are willing to, by logic, try to understand. Now, Postmodernism has affected that logic for sure, and they're they're also okay with kind of thinking outside of the box sometimes and outside of reality. But I don't think you have a generation of people that are just blind followers, um, and that is a good thing because I believe that you know God's word and His Spirit, you know, can 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 ultimately penetrate the generation and and make them become very alive and and and, and on fire. But I think that it's, uh, it's about harnessing that energy. And I think that that is probably our biggest challenge is not, you know, not rejecting. Because uh, as one of the brothers said there, I mean, we can't accommodate either. But 
at the end of the day, God has worked in every generation. God has worked throughout history. How many different, you know, movements or, or, or waves have came through history and, and God has worked powerfully? I think that there is a, a huge opportunity here, for sure. Yeah, and, and I think maybe um, on ending on that note that uh, I don't want to leave with a very <laughs> negative note. Um, there are certainly challenges facing us. But there, are, as with any challenge, there is tremendous opportunities. And, and Brad touched on it um, a little bit, and I think we must underline it very uh, forcefully, is that none of this is really capable for us to engage um, uh, sufficiently and correctly with the culture. We must be Holy Spirit-led individuals. Like uh, uh, Paul said in Galatians, you know, about keeping in step, walking with the Spirit, walking in the Spirit. That must be our focus as individuals, as church members, as the body of believers, and to nurture that in the coming generation, this, this, the importance of being led by the Spirit, guided by the Spirit, submitted to the Spirit. Because we'll do a lot of work out there and we'll be spinning our wheels. Um, thoroughly appreciated your comments. I invite you back to tomorrow so we can focus a little bit more on the church uh, and the opportunities it has.